Welcome to the Cool Tools Show. I'm Mark Frauenfelder, Editor-in-Chief of Cool Tools, a website of tool recommendations written by our readers. You can find us at cool-tools.org. I'm joined by my co-host, Kevin Kelly, founder of Cool Tools. Hey, Kevin. Hey, it's great to be here. In each episode of the Cool Tools Show, Kevin and I talk to a guest about some of his or her favorite uncommon and uncommonly good tools they think others should know about. My guest this week is John Park. John's a professional maker. He builds creative technology projects, tutorials, and videos for Adafruit Industries. John hosted the Emmy-nominated Make television show on American Public Television. Prior to joining Adafruit, John worked in computer graphics, including 12 years in animation at Disney. John's an amateur circus aerialist and a synthesizer enthusiast. Hey, John. Great to have you on the Cool Tools podcast again. Hey, yeah, Mark and uh, Kevin, nice to see you guys, or at least hear you. Yes, it's always a pleasure to hear what you have in store for us because you always have some great tool picks, and we're looking forward to them. You always do. And I think so. So the, what, what prompted me to talk to you this time was I was going through your uh, Instagram or Twitter, I think it was Instagram, you had a screenshot of a synthesizer, an old school, like 1970s patch cord synth. <laughs> and so I looked into it and found out that it was a, it's not a real synthesizer, like a virtual synthesizer. Yeah. And so I asked you about it. Like open so Yeah. No atom. Euro, yeah, it's so cool. And, and it's like an open source project and so i'm like oh, oh all right you got to get on cold tools and tell us about it so so let's hear about it excellent yeah so uh this is a a modular synthesizer uh sort of simulation uh that's happening in software uh it's called vcv rack um i think the name might stand for virtual control voltage cv mm-hmm. is a name you hear a lot uh, is a word or uh, acronym you hear a lot in in synthesizer stuff. So I think that's what that, that stands for, but I'm not sure. Okay. Um, and it's essentially a limitless uh, rack, modular rack that you can put uh, your rack synthesizer modules into, all virtual, uh, patch them together and create music or create weird sounds or uh, do sound design. It's uh, used by people to learn how to, do sort of elemental synthesis, uh, as well as people who are writing music, doing soundtrack design. It's uh, it's become very popular in the few years that it's been out. So I don't know what a rack is. What what do you mean by it's sure? Yeah. So if if you go back to uh, the early days of synthesis with Bob Moog uh, or uh, Buchla, the sort of two East Coast and West Coast synthesizer schools. Uh, those were typically made from uh, individual modules that almost look like test equipment. And by individual modules, I mean there might be something that is just an oscillator that can create sine waves. And there might be something else that is a uh, type of attenuator or amplifier that can uh, quiet or make louder those, those um, audible sounds coming from the oscillator. There might be something that uh, controls the pitch of that oscillator, and maybe it's something you can just change with a knob, or maybe it's something that is uh, a sort of step sequencer where you can say, here's eight different tones that I want played. Uh, And once you get into that, you start thinking about things like the tempo. So you need another module that's a clock that's going to sort of tick at a regular tempo that you decide, like 120 beats per minute. Um, 
So all of these individual modules in the original synthesizers, these were big, I think, five and a half inch high uh, modules. And in the 90s, I think late 90s, uh, a standard started to emerge, a new standard that was smaller, and it's called Eurorack uh, Synthesizer. And so there was a company, uh, there is a company called Dope. So, so I'm still confused about what the rack was. What would what, what you say a rack? Yeah, so it's, it's like a... Uh, uh, 3U high, 19-inch wide rack that you might find in a server farm, in a server room for rack mounting your equipment. Um, and so the, the name rack in this context, is, is it's all virtual. But the idea is you take these individual modules that uh, have a metal face plate on them, a bunch of electronics behind, and usually knobs in the front, and you slot this these into a rack next to each other. So when you think of like a big wall of synthesizers back in the 70s, uh, these were modules that were screwed into a rack, if that makes sense. Like a shelving unit, kind of, in a yeah. way, right. yeah. without the shelves. Yeah, right. Exactly. So that was, that was for the physical electronics, and now mm-hmm. there's kind of a virtual equivalent of a rack. Yeah, and so the idea behind this is that it looks like the real thing, and you you... Uh, place your modules next to each other and arrange them the way you want as on if a screen physical modules on the screen. Yeah. You're just using your mouse or a touch input or a, or a trackpad or whatever. Um, so you pick modules, you place them next to each other, and then you start patching them together with patch cables. So you literally drag from the output of one module to the input of another. And now you're sending voltage from one thing to another that, that changes the way the sound is going to work. So it's very much a, um, uh, a simulation or an emulation of a real physical thing, which uh, I find to be really helpful. So some people want to grab a synthesizer software, and there's tons of them for iPads and computers, where you just turn knobs um, or pick presets and then change change sliders for those presets. Um, but there's usually something happening behind the scenes that you're not seeing with that type of synthesizer, this one is very elemental. And this, this, this notion of modular synthesis means that you really think about how it works and you have a ton of freedom to make it work in weird ways that the original synth designer in the case of those semi-modular or sort of standard synths never thought of. So it's, it's very free for your own expression. So the, the VCV, no VCV rack, then Mm -hmm. that's kind of like the Uber, um, framework to allows all these other open source right. components to be placed in. Right. And people can continue to make new components and you have a framework now for incorporating all of these in a kind of very visual way. Precisely. Yeah. And so I think the initial install comes with a dozen or so um, stock modules that are really basic uh, elemental ones that you might want to use when you're first learning. And at, at last count, there's over 2,000 modules you can put in this thing that have been written oh by God. different developers around the world. Some of them are uh, free. Some of them you pay for. So that varies. But I've, I've bought a few. But for the most part, the free ones are enough to do almost anything you can imagine. And the idea would be that in, in some senses, you're going to be able to generate almost any type of sound mm-hmm. with this uh, virtual simulator right yeah so it it, the there's um sort of subtractive synthesis which is the the bob moog style thing where you start with a really harmonically rich sound and then you start using filters to pull some harmonics out of it 
There's West Coast synthesis, which is the the Buchla style. There are people using it for sort of what you'd think of for electronica or drum and bass, but then there's generative um, sort of evolving uh, uh, soothing pads of sound that are using randomness and uh, maybe you're quantizing so that it still is in a recognizable key, but you're you're not really controlling when it changes pitches or what the rhythms are. They can they can be um, sort of self evolving, which is a really fun uh, thing to do inside of Rack. Sure. So this um, just to kind of complete the circle. This would be running on uh, Windows. Yeah, it'll run on uh, Windows, Mac, and Linux. Okay. Um, I I have run it on some pretty old Macs and and had no problem. I have a really old. Uh, MacBook Air that it works pretty well on, okay. uh, and uh, so you don't necessarily need a, a super high octane machine cool. to be able to run it. Great. Have you? Um, is there is it there like a scripting language for it so that you can like turn on and adjust modules over time? Yeah, there's uh, there's a module that is called prototype and it accepts scripting in a few different languages. I think you can use Lua and maybe Python and another one. So you can definitely add some coding in with that one. And and I think there are others. And then it's also possible to write your own real modules from scratch uh, in, in C. And I think there's um, there's templates for helping you get started with that. Well, it's almost like its own platform. It really is. Yeah. It's, it's wild. And, and, uh, two recommendations I have to go along with it are there's a guy on YouTube named Omri Cohen, O-M-R-I Cohen, C-O-H-E-N. He has, uh, he's a musician and he's great at explaining synthesis and he has dozens and dozens of uh, videos on YouTube for free that, that teach you how to use Rack and different modules. Uh, and then the thing that actually got me started on all this was a series that I watched uh, for free with my my public library card on lynda.com. Uh, mm-hmm. If people don't know, if you have a, a public library card, there's a good chance you can use the excellent video tutorials on the lynda.com platform. Yeah. And uh, there was a series called Learning Modular by a guy named Chris Myers. And his is terrific because it takes you from knowing almost nothing to being able to put together a, a, a synthesis patch and he demonstrates it, I believe, with physical modules, but you can kind of follow along with, with Rack if you want. Cool. That's really great. Well, that sounds like so much fun. What a great way to like spend some of your time during lockdown yeah, learning sure. modular yeah, sure. synthesizers. Yeah, it's, you know what's really funny is sometimes I like to have some white noise in the background uh, when I'm working, if especially with everyone at home, if I'm hearing you know, my son or daughter in a class, I want to block mm-hmm. it out a little bit. So I'll, I'll open up rack, which has plenty of different kinds of white noise and pink noise and different colors of noise generators. And then I'll spend a half hour in there. <laughs> like I meant to just turn on noise, <laughs> but now I've lost myself in like playing around with it and, and making the, the noise morph and change and stuff. So it's, that's so cool. <laughs> now, do you find this more fun than using little hardware elements like some of the teenage engineering stuff or do you like that too uh yeah you know i i like the hardware stuff a lot and this ended up being a gateway for me into building a Eurorack uh synthesizer with with the real physical modules i've been doing it for uh, just over the past few years 
and it's uh, it's expensive and it takes up space and it's time consuming. So it's you know there's definitely some pluses to the to the one that just works on your laptop. But I, I do love having real physical sense memory of where things are and turning actual knobs. So um, it's it's not that I prefer one over the other in all cases because the limitlessness in rack means that I can decide to have you know, eight oscillators going and phasing in and out. And I don't have the room or the money to have eight full voltage controlled oscillators in my, in my real rack. So I tend to do different types of things in the, in the two systems. Cool. Um, and so just one other question is the sound out of the real true hardware thing better or is this just as good? I don't have the kind of ears that can tell. <laughs> I'm sure there uh-huh. are people okay. who will debate that endlessly, but, uh-huh. uh, uh, yeah, you. Yeah, I, I, I'm convinced by the sounds coming out of the virtual one. Okay, cool. Well, that sounds great. So, uh, the uh, VCV rack. What a what a great one! And thanks for explaining that to me because I was so intrigued by that photo. Sure and, thing. Uh, yeah. That's okay. So you have another fun one, and this looks really cool. The the bullet pencil. Oh yeah, this is great. So this was a surprise uh, gift I got from my wife for Christmas this year. Uh, and I'm carrying it with me everywhere now, which is mostly my house, but I got it in my pocket at all times. <laughs> it's this, uh, it's this gorgeous little pencil that is um, roughly the shape of a of a rifle cartridge. Uh, it's this one happens to be painted in this beautiful green color. They call it factory green, um, and it's a stubby little thing that has a pencil, roughly like a mini golf size pencil, inside of it, and you pull the pencil out of the casing, flip it around and stick it back in. And now you've got sort of a standard ish length pencil to write with, not a little golf pencil one. It actually rests up on your hand. Um, and it keeps the the tip protected when it's inside there and it's got a nice eraser on it. It also has a pocket clip. So it, I've never carried a pencil around with me because you know, you need either something to protect the tip, uh, and, and probably cut it in half. So it's not crazy long, but this one's short enough to just stick in your pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the interesting thing is when I when I got it, and then I of course looked online to find out more about it. This is nothing new. This is this is a uh, a thing that really was developed uh, during World War II as a as a way for people to carry a pencil around using a a, a spent cartridge. So there was the, the roughly thirty caliber oh, brass uh, shell casings mm-hmm. that fit a pencil really nicely because a pencil is roughly 0.3 inches um, in diameter, and so. They were handmade at first and then I think mass produced uh, and this eventually turned into a sort of um, advertising freebie. Uh, and so brass cartridges, but then with um, labels for advertising feed companies and Coca-Cola and tourist attractions were wrapped around the, the brass casing part of it. Um, and so the nice thing is that they're plentiful on eBay and I imagine you might find them at estate sales if you buy a box of stuff that came out of a drawer. Um, so you don't have to pay the premium price of this super nice Japanese one uh, that that I was lucky enough to get for Christmas. I think you can go and get them on uh, Etsy one at a time for maybe fifteen bucks a piece on eBay. You can get you know probably twenty bucks for five of them if you get a lot. Wow! So the idea is is that there's like a cartridge which has a uh, skinnier end at one end where the um, bullet would come out. Mm-hmm. Um, but the pencil is coming out the back. You take the eraser end off and the pencil is inside and then you 
actually, the, the, uh, it, when it? no, so it actually looks like it has a bullet on it. There's a silver piece, and that's kind of a coupler, and that's what the wooden part is joined to, and it's poking oh, out. When you I grab see. that silver part and pull it out as if you've just fired a bullet, then you flip it around, and that couples back into the casing, uh, and now the, the business end of the pencil is pointing forward. Okay, all right, all right. Okay. Um, cool. And, Would you and, want to make one out of your, have you thought of like getting a spent cartridge and just making your own? That would be fun. <laughs> That's a good idea. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Cause like, I would imagine cool. cartridges are even cheaper. Yeah. You know, it's a good point, you know, and get your favorite pencil and, and chop right, it right, down right. the length. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it looks great though. I love this green, green look. That would be another that. project to see if you could apply that green onto brass. I have no idea. What yeah. Yeah. And they say in their advertising that, it, that it'll eventually wear off and then it'll patina. So their, their paint they know is going to come off uh-huh. over time in your pocket. Jingling but it could be enamel or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. That'd be cool. A good one. A nice uh, project. So um, tell us about um, these, uh, your next tools. The right on. Yeah. Picks. So this is something, for some reason, I've never had dental picks. Uh-huh. And uh, so I got this set of dental picks and they're not, you know, officially meant for dentists. Uh, it's probably just cheaper if they're not, you know, this is more for using in your, in your shop or in a toolbox. Uh, but it's a set of three stainless steel dental style picks, uh, and probes. And, uh, I've been using them since I got them for a few different little tasks around the house and the workshop, uh, and, and new ones come to me all the time. But the, the two killer uses I found is, uh, one of the picks has a very skinny business end, almost needle-like, that has some angles to it instead of the uh, a curve. And that one works really, really well for digging pocket lint out of an iPhone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> because, you know, I, I've done this enough. Uh, I'm sure we all have. And I usually use a safety pin. Um, but the the fact that this has this little maybe eighth-inch hook uh-huh. on the end and another couple of angles... Uh, right. Because of what dental picks are meant for, you know, it's meant for kind of grabbing and pulling out out your mouth, uh, being held by hand. So it's really good for digging stuff out. Uh, And on that one, is it that one? Look, it's not that one. On one of the other ones, there's a scraper. And this is a mostly straight, just just barely curved uh, at its end, but it it hooks. So, you know, it looks like a a, a pirate's hook or something like that on the end. the business end of it is triangular and fairly sharp. And this is meant for scraping. Uh, and I, I, I won't go into dental scraping because that might freak people out, but you can imagine this is used for, you know, pulling, pulling plaque off of a tooth. Um, it is the best thing I have ever used for cleaning up leaked batteries in old electronics. Oh yeah. Right. right. I run across these a lot. I get old remotes or I was helping my son clean out his closet and we pulled some old, uh, somewhat, uh, perfectly. There was a, there was a Woody doll from toy story and his batteries had leaked. And so I wanted to fix them up. Uh, and you could probably use some of these picks for pulling the battery out. Cause sometimes they're hard to get out once, once the, uh, uh, once they've leaked and corroded. So the angle on some of these might help with just that yanking operation. But the, the scraper is so good for that pad that's on the plus end and even the spring where the negative terminal of the battery goes. I was able to just 
kind of chip away at that stuff and, and blow it out and uh, and get it down to where there's a, a good good contact again and use uh, Woody Works again and and I've used it on a couple other things. So, so, so some of them have also like sometimes like a diamond coated. Mm. Um, I wouldn't call it. Uh, maybe it's a scraper, but it's a kind of a diamond coated thing that, mm. that you can actually will actually be abrasive. Oh, that's great. Um, I'm not sure if that was on your set or not. No, but, it's uh, not. But that sounds terrific. I might look out yeah. for an individual one with that. The other, the other thing I use them for is picking up things from like vinyl cutter. Um, oh, uh-huh. uh When you're picking out um, things that have been cut on a vinyl cutter, perfect. You you want that little curved pick um, mm-hmm. part of it. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah, one of these is is just right for that. It's like a very needle like curve that would be great for that picking motion. Yeah, the the set that I have. Uh, Two of them are solid piece that's been machined into the shapes, and one of them clearly is a handle with with thinner uh, material that was pushed into it. So they've taken a couple of approaches. Okay, well, great. That's a it's a good reminder. Yeah, uh, but, but but you're suggesting um, a version of them that are not like the cheapest um, dental yeah. tools that you get, but something yeah. a little. Yeah, you know, I've up. I've I have run across. I never owned any. I've run across them before. I forget why. Maybe it was something one of my parents had, but. Uh, these are of an, a nicer quality, and particularly for that scraper one, by by virtue of it not being just sort of a thin bent piece of needle shoved into a handle, but it but it being one single piece that's been machined uh, and sort of sharpened on that triangular side, it's really um, heavy duty and and works well as that scraper. So uh, now this is ten dollars for three for this set of three, so it's not like it's really super expensive, but. Uh, it does seem nicer than ones I've seen that are kind of dollar store looking ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you're scraping the lint out of the iPhone, you power it down, right? Just so you, so you don't short out the leads or anything, or does it matter? Uh, that sounds like a really it. good idea. And I've never <laughs> thought to do that. <laughs> um, you don't, if you don't have a dental pick, uh, if you use a really good pair of tweezers, like a tweezer man tweezers is mm-hmm. what I use because mm-hmm. they're thin enough at the end mm-hmm. to actually reach all the way down. And you can. Uh, oh, that's cool. You you can really clean it out well mm-hmm. that way. Oh, that sounds really good. That's a good one. I've been using. I, I've got one of those uh, inductive charging pads mm-hmm. for my phone because I have the new iPhone 12 Mini, and I got like a ten dollar pad, so I don't even need to ever worry about that little charging uh, port right. anymore. Right. Yeah, because no one sinks over that cable anymore either. So you're yeah, you need that port. All so right. you just plug so it up. Set. Uh, I could with lint, (laughs) (laughs) exactly with felt. Yeah, Yeah, there you go. Sell a felt plug. Uh, Yeah, perfect. I wonder if they make like some. There's a 3D model on Tinkercad to like just plug it up. (laughs) Good idea. That's funny. Okay, so So, um, um, tell us about one more. Yeah, right on. Yeah, so the last one uh, is this ring light. Uh, it, it's a brand called Godox, G-O-D-O-X. I have one of their um, spotlights, which I use for for my uh, live stream broadcast and video. So they, they make some nice video and, and photo lights that aren't super expensive. And uh, this ring light, I, I figured there's a million of them out there. And how do you even decide? So I just wanted to see if that brand that I already knew made one 
fact they do, I think it's retail is $65. It's like 40 bucks right now on Amazon. And it's a nice 18 inch ring uh, that you, you typically see people doing uh, makeup tutorials is, is the big one that they, they push these for. So people do makeup tutorials on Instagram. Love these ring lights. It's perfect for lighting a face and you get the, the little circular highlights in your eyes, which looks nice. Um, but you can use it for other things. So the, the reason we got this was my uh, teenage son and daughter are both filming themselves a lot for show choir things and drama productions that they're doing uh, in high school through Zoom right now or pre-recorded. Uh, and so they needed uh, some, some nicer lighting for that than, than just room lights and lamps. So I got this one and it's been great. It's a, uh, I think it's 12 volts. It comes with a wall wart for the 12 volts. It has a uh, just two knobs on it. Some of them have remote controls and a, and a display and get fairly complicated. This one's dead simple because it's just a on-off uh, and, and intensity dial on one side, and there's a color temperature dial on the other, so you can make it cooler or warmer, um, depending on the lighting you want. It's LED and uh, really nice light quality. Uh, I don't know how many LEDs are packed in there, but I would guess it's probably a hundred or so, maybe more. Right. Um, and and the temperature range is like gosh, daylight it's, to yeah, it's probably yeah. like thirty six to fifty six or something like that. I don't, I don't know what the numbers are. Um, uh-huh. And um, the idea is that you put the camera in the center of the ring to look through it. Yeah. So if you want that, that just facial close-up uh, look. The idea is you put the camera in the middle, and so they've included three or more. I think there's three mounting points. Um, I don't have it with me because my daughter's using it right now for, for recording. I was going to bring it so I could look at it, but she's using it. Uh, it has three mount points inside the ring, uh, and it comes with uh, two or three little gooseneck types of uh, threaded quarter inch, so it'll accept sort of adapters from, from the camera world pretty easily. Um, so we've been using it, the kids have been using it with an iPhone right in the middle pointed at them. Uh, it also has a couple cold shoe mounts so you could hook other things to it, lights or, or more cameras at weird angles. Um, and we've also used it just as a um, uh, sort of a, a side light as well with other lighting or, or a little fill light. So you don't have to use it as a ring light, it, but it, it has a nice... Um, nice diffuse light quality. So I've, I've used it for some photography and things that I've done too. And, do, and are you using it also for your own videos? I've grabbed it for a couple things I did. Yeah. I was, I was shooting some, some video uh, where I was going to later green screen myself and put my head inside of a crystal ball for, for something I did for Adafruit uh, last month. And this light was perfect for that. Cause it just gave, gave a really nice uh, uh, quality of light. But in general, you um, just use other shop lights or lights in. Um, yeah, I, I haven't used it as like a illuminate stuff that I'm working on kind of light. Uh, it's probably not great for that because you're going you're gonna to get an eyeball full of lighting because of that big diffuse uh, donut around it. Um, but I do use this 60 watt is what they call it. Uh, it's probably not or maybe it's called the SL60W from Godox. And it's one of those giant LED um, panels. It's like a uh, no. It looks like a traditional spotlight, uh. Uh, but it, but the di- the diode is huge. It's one of these like three inch square LED diodes on the end of a massive heatsink. I don't know if you've seen these types of uh, lights, but they're in the 
$200 range for a really nice uh, quality of, of light. And then it goes through a, uh, a soft box so that you're I not see. getting okay. blinded by it. So you've got uh, videos that you do for Adafruit. They're really fun. Um, you have a couple of series. Tell us about them and uh, you know what, what, what's in them, who, who uh, the audience is for them. That kind of stuff. Sure. Yeah. So I do two different live streams a week for Adafruit. One is on Tuesdays. It's called JP's Product Pick of the Week. And uh, that's every Tuesday at one o'clock uh, Pacific time. And I each week, it's about, that was about 15, 20 minute show. And I bring on some new product from Adafruit, uh, explain a little bit about it and do one or two live demos with it. Um, one of the interesting things about this is uh, Phil and Lamore from Adafruit, they uh, had seen some uh, websites in China where they were, they were uh, might, might have been Taobao, where they were doing live streams from inside the product page. And they, mm-hmm. it's kind of like a QVC uh, type of thing where there's whatever the product is, you know, a pair of slippers or whatever, but someone is live streaming from inside of that product page for seven hours. And as they get more people coming and watching, they do different discounts and giveaways and it's, it's bonkers. But Phil said, yeah, it's wild that Amazon or someone isn't doing videos from inside of a product page so that you can come and see it and maybe get a discount. So that's what we're doing with those. Yeah. We actually do cool. uh, often a 50% discount on whatever the product is just during the, the live stream. So people will come on and they can um, ask questions in the chat and and, uh, and experience the, the product a little bit and then go and buy one for a discount if they, if they tuned in at that time. So that's kind of our experiment with that. Uh, and I've been doing that for a few months now. I think we just had episode 18 was the... Uh, was the one on Tuesday. Tell me like a typical product or one that's memorable to you that sure that was fun. Yeah. So the one that I just did actually was a, uh, it's called a Wii nunchuck adapter. And these have existed for a while, but we have a sort of a new take on it. And this is a little PCB that has uh, contacts on both sides of a, of a small protrusion that you can stick into a video game accessory. So the, the Nintendo Wii was wild because it had the, the, the main controller called the Wiimote had a little port they called the accessory port in the bottom. And into that, you could plug things like the nunchucks, you could plug in uh, guitar controllers, you could plug in drum set controllers. So there are all these things that plugged into it. Um, well, those all happen to be using a, a, a standard that, that we all know in the electronics world that's called I squared C. And it has four uh, context for power, ground, and data, and clock. And so this is a really well-known uh, protocol, and people pretty quickly realized, oh, you can take that inexpensive add-on thing and use it with your Arduino or your circuit Python microcontroller. Uh, and suddenly you have this little mass-produced thing that's kind of great. It, you know, the nunchuck has a thumbstick on it, it has two buttons, and it has an accelerometer built in. So it's a really... Uh, useful, nicely packaged piece of, of gear that you can probably buy used for five bucks these days at a, at a thrift store or online. Uh, and you can add it to your, your project using this little adapter. So, um, so this Wii Chuck adapter that I was showing on Tuesday, um, sort of the innovation with it and the thing that I've been doing a lot on this show is we have a whole line of uh, products that are called Stemma. Uh, and some of them are this subset of them called Stemma QT. What these are is uh, they have, rather than the typical um, 
mail header pins that you solder onto it and then stick it into a breadboard or a protoboard so that your microcontroller can talk to it. Uh, these use a tiny little JST connector. Uh, so it's sort of plug and play. And the nice thing about I squared C is you can have a lot of different devices on the one I squared C bus. So these sort of daisy chains, so you can say, oh, I'm going to have a little microcontroller and then I'm going to have a little display, a little OLED display, and then I'm going to plug this nunchuck controller into it. And then I can program my microcontroller so that I see the accelerometer values show up on that little screen. Uh, and if you want to add more things, you just kind of plug them in until you, until you run out of uh, 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 devices. Wow. So that's, that's one uh, of your channels, I guess. You, and do you have another one that you're running as well? Uh, I also do the John Parks workshop on Thursdays, and that one is a, a longer show. And on that, I do uh, some segments like the Make Code Minute, where I show how to code something using Microsoft Make Code, which is a uh, web browser-based visual programming language that works um, on a lot of different platforms. You can kind of code in this familiar environment by dragging physical blocks and connecting them, but it can be used to drive different microcontrollers. It can be used to drive Minecraft. It can be used to drive uh, some of the Lego robotics things. So it's a, a really nice platform uh, for education. And so I've, uh, I've got a, a segment inside of my larger show that I do every week called the Make Code Minute, where I go over a new uh, use for that. Is that also live stream or is that? Discord? It is. Yeah, it's a live stream. And uh, what I do on that show, because I, I have that segment, and then I also do like a larger project build. In fact, this week, I tied the two shows together because my larger project build was turning one of those Wii guitar controllers into a MIDI controller so that you can control any synthesizer uh, from it, kind of re reimagining how to use the thing instead of just for playing a game. Um, and then what I do is I take segments of that and put them out as their own videos. So the Make Code Minute becomes its own little um, series that you can go and check the playlist on Adafruit and watch just those if you don't want to see the larger show. You mean you take the live stream and then kind of break it up into smaller recorded bits? Exactly. Yep. Okay. Yep. Okay, cool. What are they called? Just, just so we have the names to be sure. You, you, could you say the names of those? Sure. Again? It's JP's Product Pick of the Week on okay. Tuesdays and John Park's Workshop on Thursdays. And John, just before we go, since we have a minute or two, yep. um, talk. one of the things that you've been kind of demoing and that I'm interested in is CircuitPython. Mm -hmm. What is that and wh why is it cool? Yeah, so CircuitPython. So the context for, for CircuitPython is really knowing about Arduino. So if you're familiar with Arduino, it's a uh, it's both used to talk about a piece of hardware, a little microcontroller board that has uh, input and output and a little bit of memory on it. Uh, and then there's Arduino, the programming language, which is very much like C. Uh, and when you use Arduino, you typically use a, uh, uh, an IDE, an integrated development environment, where you code in C and then you compile your code and your compiled code gets uh, flashed to your little Arduino piece of hardware. So that's the typical workflow with Arduino. Um, CircuitPython works very similarly. You, you can kind of do the same sorts of things um, you can write code that'll blink LEDs that'll read when you press buttons and make a light come on or whatever you want to do. Um, but the, the major difference with it is that it is a runtime, 
uh, language. So you write your Python code and you just hit save and it runs. So for uh, getting set up and started, when you plug in your microcontroller into your computer, it just shows up like a little USB drive, like a thumb drive. The circuit Python file is just usually called code.py. You can open it, save it, and it immediately runs. And so... And it's just a text file. It's just a text file, yeah. Okay. You know, some of the benefits there are just there's there's nothing other than a text editor that you need to get started, which is really helpful for teachers because uh, getting people to install software uh, can be tricky and, and there's a lot of variations in the IDEs and things. Um, so as long as you can mount a USB drive, you can edit this file and, and uh, do your coding that way. Um, and it's also really fast. It's very iterative in the sense that you can type something, hit save and see if it worked rather than the typical compile and flash process that you that you deal with inside of Arduino. So it ends up feeling really iterative, which is great for me because I'm, I'm a hack when it comes to coding. So I really just like to try stuff and print <laughs> statements and, yeah. and cut and paste and, until I get things working. So um, so CircuitPython uh, is actually a fork of a uh, language called MicroPython. Uh, and this mm-hmm. fork, one of its main uh, missions is to keep things very simple and to uh, develop drivers for nearly every possible peripheral uh, that both Adafruit and other people make. So nearly any device that you could plug into a microcontroller, we have support for that inside of CircuitPython. And do you have to install something onto Arduino to make CircuitPython work? Uh, yeah, so there's a um, there's an install process that you just do one time, which is just going to mm-hmm. make the microcontroller run CircuitPython. Uh, okay. So, so essentially, you're you're flashing the microcontroller with a program that is CircuitPython, and then the little text mm-hmm. scripts that you're putting on it are the thing that it runs. So so it's okay. You you put on the CircuitPython one time, and then that's it. You don't deal with that process unless you want to update the version when when new versions come out. So if you're using CircuitPython, there's like you never want to use that IDE with uh, that scripting language again. It seems like this it's is funny. the way to I, go. Yeah, you, I was just using Arduino yesterday and today for a project, and I was like, oh my gosh, I I, I forgot the pain of the compile and, and upload process, especially because that can be finicky as far as like hitting reset buttons mm-hmm. and getting it to work. Yeah. Um, there are things I still love about Arduino. Arduino is faster because it's compiled. So there are some things you'll do that are just not going to be that fast uh, to run on, on Python. So I think they both have a place. Uh, I, I wouldn't say get rid of one and only use the other. Um, but I tend to try to get it done with CircuitPython first, just because I know I'll be able to iterate really quickly. Yeah. So, so John, I had a question uh, as we kind of wind up. Um, you had an interesting line in your bio about working in animation at Disney. Were you an animator or working in the support of animation? Yeah, I was a uh, character TD, character technical director was the, the main thing I did. So I, that's sometimes also called a rigger, I essentially was rigging up the character uh, as a, essentially a digital puppet to hand to the animator. So uh, it was usually a collaboration between the modeler who built the 3D model of the character uh, and the character rigger who was putting essentially the virtual bones and facial expressions and controls in, and then the animator who would be posing that. So 
Uh, that was the main thing I did. Software, but you're you're doing all that rigging, and you see, it's like a software rigging. Yes, that's right. It's all virtual, so you're doing all that rigging inside of software. Um, typically, we would use a, a piece of software called Maya, uh, and uh, then there was some scripting on the side in like a C-like language. These days, people tend to use Python more um, to build things like controls or expressions that would um, uh, allow eyes to lock onto a target for a certain period of time during the, during the animation or uh, to adjust things like deformations so that there's musculature movement um, that is secondary to the, to the, to the main rig. So uh, it was sort of a technical slash artistic job. It, it bridged both of those worlds, like a lot, like almost every job inside of uh, CG animation, really. Right. Exactly. Wow. You also did, you had something to do with a, one of the Tinkerbell CGI movies that was really fun and kind of involved like makers. What was it? Remember that one? Uh, My kids yeah, really liked yeah, that. Yeah, I, I uh, was a, um, I, I ended up being this, the CG supervisor, computer graphic supervisor for a number of the Tinkerbell uh, animated movies at Disney Toon Studios. And so that meant I was kind of overseeing a, a lot of those disciplines. Um, mm-hmm. Something I did after I was character uh, rigging. And the, yeah, the, the Tinkerbell movies were great because it really developed Tinkerbell into a maker. Uh, she builds clever thing. In fact, the first Tinkerbell movie, she builds clever little gizmos and gadgets to help people yeah. see hollow using acorns and you know, a lot of Rube Goldberg looking mechanisms. Uh, so it was a lot of fun working with that, uh, working on those movies. That was so cool. Yeah. I recommend that. I think that was like a big inspiration to, uh, my my daughter Jane oh, and being a maker and stuff like watching that and seeing like oh you can you know put those things together and levers and screws and oh, all that kind of stuff. Hear. I love that. <laughs> all right, well, thanks, John. Thank you guys so much for having me. And you know what? I checked uh, our notes, and it was a year and a day ago that we met last time. So thanks for having wow. me back again. <laughs> Perfect. Um, we'll have you in a year and a day again. Perfect. <laughs> Hey everybody, it's your host Mark and I wanted to thank you for listening to the Cool Tools show and I also wanted to let you know that we've got a lot more going on at Cool Tools than just this podcast. We also have the Cool Tools website which has a new tool review every day and you can get there by going to cool-tools.org. We also have four different newsletters that you can subscribe to and you can subscribe to those from the Cool Tools page. We have this podcast that you're listening to right now We also have a YouTube channel where we review tools. Check that YouTube channel out by going to youtube.com slash cool tools. And one of the things I'd like to ask you is if you're really enjoying everything that we are producing, go to our Patreon page and support us there. You can sign up and give us as little as $1 a month, and that would mean a lot to us. The money that we get from Patreon goes towards a lot of things. We transcribe our podcast interviews so that you can read them online. We pay for editing of our podcasts and for our videos. We pay our contributors. We have video production costs. We have equipment costs. We have hosting costs. And the money you give us through Patreon also goes to support Cool Tools Lab. Anything you give is a huge help. And One of the things that we do is if you are a contributor to Patreon, we'll give you a shout out on air. And so I have a few people here to thank this week. Mark Lyonaj, Micah Gates, Monty Zukowski, Patrick James McNally, Robert Cohen, Scott, 
Spence Lloyd, Steve Avery, Steve Golden, Steve Levine, Tom Hess, William Phillips, Aaron Nipper, Darab Patel, Glenn Mercer, Jay Walker, Jeff Bonner, Ryan Jarrell, Pat Daly, Patrick Kennedy, Troy Wallet, Mike Camerate, Nicole Harkin, Tim Youssef, Scott Reed. Thanks all of you for supporting Cool Tools. And if you would like to have a shout out, go over to the Patreon page and sign up. And thanks for listening to the Cool Tools podcast. We'll see you next week.